Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello, are you here for the podcast? The podcast about work culture and happiness? This is it, hello. Here's some admin. You can find us on Twitter by searching Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. This week I tweeted about Netflix updating their culture document and about all the challenges, the ongoing saga of Uber updating uh, a couple of different episodes there. I've also got a personal Twitter, actually, if you'd like to read what my favourite album of the year is, or me droning on about social justice. I think this could be your go-to account. People who are connected with me on LinkedIn got a slightly spammy email about the podcast this week. My LinkedIn is not what you'd call best practice. The political conversation I initiated on there a couple of weeks ago got so out of hand, I ended up blocking a few people. Who knew that LinkedIn even had a block function? Uh, it, it was idiotic behaviour and uh, I don't know do you ever wonder if you're the idiot my my colleague and friend Dara said if you haven't worked out who the idiot is after the first 10 minutes of a meeting it means it's probably you he didn't use the word idiot to be fair he's got an obscenely toxic mouth he even gave one of his kids a swear word for a name he's banned from three local playgrounds for calling her as a result Anyway, maybe my conduct on LinkedIn and elsewhere means I am an idiot and, and like the sixth sense, I'm the only one who hasn't realised yet. Let's get down to business. Today's episode is simple and brilliant. It's about the concept of obliquity and that's the idea that you can achieve complex goals indirectly. Specifically, it came up in two discussions in earlier episodes with Richard Reeves and with Paul Dolan. And it's the idea that if you want to be happier or make people happier at work, you don't achieve that by going and trying to set out to make them happier. So let's speak to the person who popularised that and, and turned it into a business concept. Uh, that's John Kay. Uh, he, he really came up with it in his 2010 article and book called Obliquity. John is one of Britain's leading economists. He's a professor at LSE, a fellow at Oxford University. You don't need any more prattling from me. But you should listen to John. Think about if you are trying to make people happier at work, how would you set about doing it obliquely? Here's John. Explain to me the the concept of obliquity. Right, the concept of obliquity is that complex goals are often best pursued indirectly. The example of that that people find easiest is happiness. 
that actually you don't become happy by pursuing happiness, whatever the American Constitution may say. People are happy because they develop a satisfying career, good relationships with other people, comfortable family life, and so on. And that's very different from repeating pleasurable experiences, which we call hedonism, and which is really rather different. People who behave like that don't end up as particularly happy. So happiness is not actually the sum of happy moments. Yeah, and so you illustrate it through lots of examples. One of the examples, which I think from a business perspective is fascinating, is taking the example of ICI. So so the example of ICI for a long time was a proud British successful business. And I started with a mission statement of ICI in the late 1980s when they said our aim is to the responsible application of chemistry and related sciences and business. And then went on to say through achievement of our aim, that is the application of science to business, we will make money for our investors, provide jobs for our workers and serve the communities in which we operate. They changed that in the early 90s to say say our objective is to create shareholder value by focusing on business in in which we have competitive advantage, cost leadership and a prominent market position. Now what's interesting actually is to look at the history of the company in these two phases. ICI was formed in 1926, started as essentially a merger of a dye stuffs and explosives company. Focus of um, chemistry and business moved on to petrochemicals, fertilizers and so and they made that shift in the 1930s. In the 1940s, they saw that the, the future of chemistry and business was in pharmaceuticals. So they set up a pharmaceutical division. They lost money in that division for 20 years, which would be difficult for any company to do now. But in the 1960s, they discovered Blockbuster drug, which was beta blockers, uh, beneficial for people with high blood pressure, sold millions around the world. The pharmaceutical division became profitable, and soon it was the main engine of profits and revenue growth in the company. The ICI that started in the mid-90s, well, it's quite interesting to see what happened. The share price peaked in 1997, and it went steadily down. By 2003, it had lost 80% of its value. What they tried to do was to sell off some of the boring old businesses, the staples and petrochemicals and so on, and buy sexy new businesses. For a time, they wanted to be a smells company, they thought. And all this was a reshuffling of portfolio was a disaster. Share price had collapsed, stabilised early 2000s. But in 2007, what was left of the company was taken over by Dutch company ExoNobel. So that was what happened to one of Britain's what was Britain's leading industrial company for most of the 20th century. So specifically, by aiming to increase shareholder value, they had exactly the opposite effect. They had exactly the opposite effect. And so when, when it comes to the application of this for happiness, I think you, t- you, you talk in your work about how uh, John Stuart Mill was a sort of studier of, of this. And his pursuit of happiness, he ended up reaching the, the same conclusion you've said he, here. Right. He did, actually. And John Stuart Mill was the great advocate, a great advocate of utilitarianism, that the pursuit of happiness was, in a sense, the end of life. He wasn't, if one's honest, a very happy man during his life. And in his autobiography, he said, I came to see that happiness could only be achieved indirectly by pursuing other goals. So so I'm thinking, I always think specifically about work culture. And I think, you know, one thing that most people have got this notion that happy or motivated people will do better work. 
And so consequently, if we make people happy, they'll do better work. And with the learning of obliquity, with the understanding of obliquity, that seems to be... Starts to make sense. And uh, obviously there's a balance to be struck between making people happy and making them work. If you have a company which says our goal is to maximise shareholder value, then the question anyone who works in that company is going to ask is, why do I want to work for a company like this? And the only answer you can give to that question is because we're going to make you a lot of money. Maybe that's the answer some of these companies give. In terms of creating cooperative working relationships, people who want to look after customers and care about customers and so on, that's uh, or people wanting to work for a business that they can feel proud of when they go down the pub or to a drinks party. That's not the way to do it. It's quite funny. The, the worst examples of that are, of course, companies in the financial sector, which have said for some time our purpose is to create shareholder value. The extreme case was Bear Stearns, which famously had a sign on its trading floor saying we make nothing but money. But in the end, it turned out that Bear Stearns didn't succeed in making that either. And they didn't make it for basically for a reason that these businesses like Bear Stearns or Lehman were actually destroyed by the greed of their own employees. Because if you you have a purely instrumental organisation, that's what will happen. So, so is that specifically because if you've got an organisation that exists solely, you know, their, their, their objective is binary, to make money, then there's no rules or there's no culture that guards against that? What's there the might reason? be rules, but right. there's no culture. Right. Or the only culture is making as much money as possible. And that translates for most people into making as much money as possible for yourself. And the difference is between that and people working for an organisation that they feel is doing worthwhile, that people feel proud to work for. One of the things that has struck me is I, I think most careers where people earn a lot of money, you know, think, think of things like law and so on, people actually love the jobs they're doing. People who are successful professional footballers uh, would pay football for very little money. In fact, if we look historically, people like Stanley Matthews did. So it's not money that is driving them to do it. On the other hand, people in the finance sector, I've heard a lot of them say, you know, I, I, I hate my job, but I can't afford to give it up. And quite a lot of people are anxious just to make enough money to be able to quit. A lot of people reaction was a bit the one we're having in this podcast of saying kind of I'd always known that and you've put into words what I always thought or another version of that is I'd always known that hadn't I which is, which is perhaps less flattering and then you get the people in business who go on parroting the mantra about shareholder value and I don't quite know how one's going to change that the silliest version of that from people in business I think is people who say of course a business can't pursue multiple objectives and I find that just ridiculous everyone pursues multiple objectives how else could you get through life I, th- I think that the peak of the shareholder value boom is over it, it kind of ended in 2008 with the global financial crisis and you may remember Jack Welch, General Electric, the US company, who is often described as the architect of shareholder value or the shareholder value theory, which is not actually true because he didn't talk about shareholder value until well into the 1990s when it had become become very fashionable. When he famously said in 2009, shareholder value is the dumbest idea. I mean, I wonder if we, I wonder if all these things are cyclical because right now there seems to be a lot of companies that try to profess a sense of purpose and meaning or mission, which in itself is 
often seems quite hollow. Yeah, and I'm cautious about this. You know, I, I want to say that in the business of business is business. In a business, not only is it not the purpose of business to do good, but I really don't want business people going around deciding what good is. Because the business people who decide what good is are as or perhaps more likely to be Donald Trump and the Koch brothers rather than the people who have the ideas that we probably have about what business right. should be trying to do. When it comes to like happiness then, do you think like, the focus on net national happiness measures, do, do you think those things are helpful? No, I don't actually. Well, right. One thing I really dislike is people constructing these bogus indices of uh, uh, you know, net national welfare or... Um, human development or whatever. I, I sometimes think of it as if you compare countries for um, you know, human development and so on, then Canada and Norway tend to come top. And if you think about it, if Canada and Norway didn't come top or close to top, you wouldn't think, gosh, I must have been wrong about Canada. You would think there must be something wrong with this index. Yeah. And I think you'd be right. You know, we know Canada's pretty comfortable and we know Syria's not. And we don't need an index yeah. to tell us yeah. that. Um, We're telling the index what is happening yeah. rather than the other way around. It's one of my favourite examples to illustrate obliquity that everyone knows that the Pacific Ocean lies to the west of the Atlantic Ocean. But actually, if you look for the shortest route from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific, you discover it actually travels east because it goes through the Panama Isthmus and you arrive in the Pacific Ocean at a point east of the one where you started. And as it were, the most direct route through uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific is through Nicaragua or at worst the United States or Canada, which is much longer and which no one has, has yet traversed. I have another example, actually, which I use even more, I think is in a way even more striking, which is 2004, NASA launched this uh, mission to put a probe in orbit around Mercury. The probe took seven years to go into orbit. Before it got there, it circled the Earth once, Venus twice, Mercury three times. And you can see that problem. If you fired a probe direct to Mercury, it would either hit Mercury or it would pass by Mercury. And either way, it wouldn't generate any of the information you want. You had to adopt oblique an oblique approach. And therefore, they, they actually calculated this immensely complicated trajectory. They did that very well and very successfully, so that when it arrived seven years later, it was in more or less exactly the place that they planned seven years earlier it would be. While that sounds immensely complicated, it's actually an easy problem by the, by the standards of the ones we face in business or finance or our personal lives. Because we know about the solar system. We, there are equations that people have written down, and they've been written down for centuries. What people call stationary, by which they mean they, they stay the same, they're the same now as they were 500 years ago. And also the system isn't, isn't affected by the way we interact with it. That, you know, passing by Venus affects the rocket, but it doesn't affect Venus much. And none of these things are true of the typical complex problems we face. They're uh, affected by the way we interact with them. We don't really know what the underlying system is, and it's always changing anyway. The, that's what real problems are. And the notion that we can 
calculate solutions to that, to, to these kind of problems, is just, you know, fantasy. Even if you decided your objective is to maximise shareholder value, you go into your desk and you think, what do I do to maximise shareholder value today? And even after the event, you wouldn't know whether you've done it or yeah. not. I wonder, it, it does raise the question, though, what you should aim for. Because, look, you know, so if, whether it's maximising shareholder value or whether it's maximising the motivation and the, the, the contentment of people at work, is it always evident what you should be aiming for? I think the way you make money in business is you create a great business, right. really. I'm sure Steve Jobs wasn't uninterested in money, but what he was really interested in was changing the face of computing. Right. So and he st- did, and by the way, he made a lot of money in the right. process. So you set out, you, you sort of, your objective is to do whatever you're doing with a great quality, or a quality that befits the level of the market you're going for. Yeah, in a sense, the most paradoxical figure in all of this is Warren Buffett, the the great investor who is now one of the two or three richest men in the world. If you ask why he does what he's doing, he does it because he loves it, and he's described money as just really a way of keeping score for me. And famously, he still lives in the same bungalow in Omaha he lived in 50 years ago. The measure of his achievement and doing Doing what he wants to do but if he was focused on making as much on the trappings of being very rich he wouldn't in fact have made anything like yeah. as much money as he has yeah. what motivates him is being a great investor Thank you to John. A brilliant concept there. I think one very easy to use and adapt into uh, your own discussions at work Thank you for listening. I've got some really good episodes coming up. So appreciate that. And thanks for uh, all the the feedback. So always good to, to hear from you. See you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.